Our scripture passage for today is continuing in the book of John, and we are nearing the end of the book of John. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from the Holy Word of God. John chapter 24, excuse me, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks that these things are recorded in the Gospel of John, that by reading that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the risen Savior, God himself, victorious. And through his victory, our lives should never be the same because we trust in him. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for many things. I remember several things neglected in the pastoral prayer. We have many blessings to thank you for, as Andy shared, from small blessings of a leaf truck, to the large and glorious blessings of children, such as Francis' birthday. We thank you for all of your gracious gifts to us. Above all else, we give thanks for this glorious gift of a risen Savior who declares to Thomas and to us and to people throughout the ages, regardless of race or creed, stop doubting and believe. We pray that your word might have this effect in us, that we would stop doubting and believe, that we might be your people without apology, proclaiming the words of your word found in scripture, that others too might find this faith in Christ which we have found. I pray that my words would give honor and glory to you, be faithful to your word in scripture because it is your word alone through the work of your Holy Spirit has the power to change our lives and the lives of all on whom it is poured with conviction through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage was written to explode our illusions, to break us out of our patterns of disbelief. Although it's an expression used in the negative, in a derogatory way, in oftentimes not a good way, it is all too often true that the expression, I'm from Missouri, fits us. 
For those of you who are not familiar with the expression, I'm from Missouri, or he's from Missouri, it is, it's a phrase, it's a saying. It's more than just a statement of fact. Because, of course, I'm not from Missouri. Do we have anybody here who is from Missouri? We don't have anybody here who's from Missouri. <clears throat> but for those not familiar with this expression, to be from Missouri is a reference to the fact that Missouri is called the show-me state. Show-me. As in Doubting Thomas, show-me and I'll believe. And so when you say, I'm from Missouri, what you're saying is, I won't believe it until I see it. Now that is what Thomas said explicitly. Well, perhaps we should change the phrase and make the expression, I'm Thomas's brother, <laughs> instead of, I'm from Missouri. Thomas called Doubting Thomas could be described as being from Missouri because he refuses to believe unless he can see for himself. And Thomas does not just want one minor proof. He wants the whole nine yards. He wants the whole ball of wax. <clears throat> he wants his senses to be touched in different ways so that he cannot just observe it with his eyes, but feel it with his hands, with his finger in the nail hole, and put his hand in the side of Christ. So in other words, he wants an extra sensory a multiple sensory experience so that his mind can register and his heart can believe. How often it is true <clears throat> that people refuse the evidence of others, <clears throat> insist upon their own personal proof, <clears throat> that they feel only their own senses, a sense of taste, a sense of smell, a sense of seeing, a sense of hearing, and a sense of touch. These five senses can give to them. And they feel that if they personally are able to experience this, that they will believe it. But without personal sensory experience, they will not believe. We live increasingly in an age in which material, physical proofs, people require them for decision-making and everyday living. What is it when people maintain in our world today, that there is no such thing as absolute truth? What leads a person to say that there is nothing about which we can be positive? Nothing that can be proven beyond a doubt? What is it that these statements are made, and this expression is common today, but that all values, all morals, and our own, all statements are only true if they are true for the individual who believes them or makes them? It is a reliance upon personal, individual experience, personal observation, personal sensory proof. <clears throat> and what these statements and these worldviews reveal is that if it comes from someone other than myself, I simply won't believe it. <clears throat> These sorts of things result in the view, if you think it's wrong to steal, that's fine, but I won't necessarily agree with you, because for me it may not be wrong. Some people have this view. 
If you think the sky is blue and the grass is green, I may not agree. For me, it may be the other way around. And I chuckled as I considered this particular illustration because since I'm colorblind, it might just be the other way around. But who's right? My eyes communicate with my brain and perhaps say something, well, not blue and green, but red and, red and green or something along those lines, pink and gray, you know. Um, <clears throat> but my mind may tell me something different than your mind. Who is right? And so Thomas was relying upon himself and refusing to accept the statements of others on this, the most significant of matters, regarding the proof of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 25, at the beginning we read, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. At the end of the verse, Thomas responded, unless I see I will not believe it. In other words, it doesn't matter what you've seen. It doesn't matter if you see the sky is falling. It doesn't matter what you don't see. It doesn't matter what you tell me. The only thing that matters to me is my senses, the proof that I myself witness. Now, the interesting thing to me, in the context of our day and age, in which everything has become subjective, in other words, what I sense is the only reality that there is. Your senses don't make any difference. The subjective reality, rather than objective, which is that we all agree that there are certain absolute truths. The interesting thing about this is this: <clears throat> we are increasingly living in a world in which what is real only appears to be real. In other words, we're increasingly living in a culture in which people are living out a subjective reality. What I see is the only thing that counts. Well, the society around us is going to virtual reality. Take television, for instance. You watch a program. In it, you're traveling through outer space, zooming past stars, asteroids, and other spacecraft. Is it real? Is it? How many of you think... That's real. <laughs> or consider your computer or your neighbor's computer. On it, you can be involved in a game in which you're in a race or playing golf at many of the finest golf courses around the world. Or you can fight in realistic battles in which it is possible for your character to get killed or for you to kill others. And more and more, the gaming computers are getting faster and more technologically. If you have any questions about computers, you can ask Andrew. He's starting to get involved in that more heavily in his teaching. But you see all the advertisements for these computers, and this computer is a fabulous gaming platform. And what that means is that it looks more and more like reality. Consider pictures. Nowadays, it's not merely <clears throat> the glamour photos that get edited. There are photos galore in which people have been edited right out of the picture or changes made from minor to significant. I was reading a book the other day, a computer book, in when they were talking about what could be done with photo editing. And the funny story in it was that a lady had brought in a picture 
and she thought that, uh, that the photo editors really could do literally miracles in their photo editing. And she brought it in, and she said to them, I have this picture, and this is a picture of my father who has just died. And it was a picture of her father fishing with his buddies, only this is the way he was in the picture. And she said, I'd like you to turn him around. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but <laughs> I'd like you to turn him around in the picture. But, but in reality, that's not, it's not really, it's, it's, they could do that today. If you have a picture of your father's face, we'll just, you know, fix things and make it look like he actually was facing the camera when the camera took the shot. Or consider the world of taste and smell. I wasn't sure. Sarah, when she put this on me, is this, uh, Jim, I think you've got one. Is it a, is it a scratch and sniff? Yeah. I thought it was, Sarah. I was noticing when I, when my coat came back, I, I don't remember having that smell on this morning. <laughs> World of scratch and sniff. Cars that smell like whatever this smells like. <clears throat> Strawberry or any other scent. Is it real because your nose tells you so? Is that a strawberry? Or whatever? I think it's soap. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. But is it really what it smells like? <clears throat> Artificial flavors. They taste like the real thing. We are sophisticated enough to know that they aren't. <clears throat> and yet the world of our day and the world of our day, people are insisting more and more upon relying on the evidence only of their own senses. Ironic. We're moving into a virtual world where unreality is so much like reality, and yet people have not grasped the fact that the world that we are increasingly living in, where unreality is so much like reality, at the same time, they're moving down a parallel path in which they're saying, if I don't experience it, then it's not real. Well, what if they do experience it? Is it real? <clears throat> so if seeing is believing, there are many people in many situations today who are believing many things that simply are false. And yet we can understand Thomas's desire for personal proof. What we must realize is that in spiritual terms, faith is a gift that comes from the Lord. <coughs> and in spiritual terms, as the evidence proves beyond a doubt, seeing does not necessarily lead to believing. Consider, for instance, the time before Christ's crucifixion. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, all the teachers of the law. All of these people who saw Christ, they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, they heard about his miracles. And yet they did not believe in him. They hated him. And so very clearly, in spiritual terms, to see the truth does not mean to accept it. As we ponder these questions in light of this passage and what it teaches us about faith, there are certainly some other issues here which we must examine along the way. This issue of Thomas' disbelief came to light because Thomas was not present the week before 
When Christ arose and appeared to his disciples when they were gathered together in the locked room, as we saw two weeks ago as I preached on the previous verses of chapter 20. And so I suggest a question, which is a very interesting to me question to examine in light of this passage. Where was Thomas when the others were gathered together? Where was Thomas? It appears that Thomas was the lone man, shall we say the odd man out, the lone man missing from that previous gathering. Doubtless during their time together before Christ appeared in their midst, they were praying, seeking the wisdom of God in their difficult and uh, tense situation and comforting one another. But of the 11 remaining, now let, let me get to terminology here before I go any further, because increasingly following the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the disciples no longer means the 12. Of course, Judas has, has killed himself, has committed suicide. So now there, there are 11. But when it speaks of disciples from this point on, and in many points elsewhere in the Gospels of John and in the other Gospels, when it speaks of the disciples, it frequently means a much broader group than Matthew, Peter, John, and, and the rest. And so I will speak of the eleven, meaning those who are remaining from those that Christ chose to follow him explicitly in, in the close context. And I will speak of disciples, meaning all of the followers. Because as we know from the previous examination of chapter 20, there were many more gathered together in that room than just the 11, or shall we say the 10, because Thomas wasn't there. Judas had died, Thomas wasn't there, 10 remaining. But the disciples were gathered together, meaning those who were followers of Christ. Of the 11, Thomas was missing. Why? Was he too discouraged to gather together <clears throat> with the others? Was he off hiding by himself? Was he ill? Was he too disillusioned to continue in fellowship with them at that time and he wanted some distance from them? There's no suggestion. There's no explanation. We don't know where he was. We do not know what he was doing on that previous meeting. But this much we know, by his absence... Thomas missed the presence of the Lord and the opportunity to worship the risen Savior. Fortunately, the following week, by the testimony of the other followers of Christ, <clears throat> Thomas was among them when Christ appeared to them again. This is both testimony to Thomas' heart devotion to the other disciples and to Christ and to their love and devotion to Thomas. Otherwise, whatever reason had kept them from their gathering the previous Sunday may well have caused them, the disciples who were there when he wasn't, to have turned on him and with disgust or resignation to give him up as a man who had deserted the faith and no longer cared for them or their cause or their Lord. But we read in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. The verse begins with a so. So the other disciples told him. Why is that so there? Why a word that indicates that it came naturally to them to communicate this to him, since he had not been there and witnessed it for himself? And so, so often, when people are gathered together and they see something great, 
and someone is missing from it, how often have we heard and even felt ourselves the expression, well, that's too bad for him. He missed it. Isn't that a common expression? All too common. Why this word that indicates it came naturally for them to report this to him? Because they had news of great importance and urgency, news of great worth, news to occasion great rejoicing. So they told him about Christ visiting them. Despite his skepticism and doubt, for it was indeed glorious news that changed everything. There's not enough time in between their testimony to him of the resurrection of Christ and Christ's appearance among them for them perhaps to grow tired of Thomas' doubt and unbelief, the sorts of things which are like the grain of sand in the oyster, which grinds and grinds and grinds, and at some point the oyster becomes weary of it. Nevertheless, Thomas was among them the next Sunday, indicating that they were persistent to love and encourage him despite his disbelief and doubts. How is this a signal to us? This provides us with an example to follow in spreading the news concerning Christ to others. I'm not here speaking specifically of witnessing to the outside world. Because Thomas was not the outside world. Thomas was one who had been among them. But this gives us an example that we must be persistent to remind those who have been a part of us, those who have been among us, of the glorious news of our salvation. So that we do not let them forget this glorious news to their harm. From time to time, there are those who gather together with us in the church who turn aside and seemingly, it may readily appear to us, seemingly fall away from the faith. Or they just stop gathering together with us on Sundays and when we gather at other times. And we can turn against them quickly and just say, well, that's too bad for them. Or we can just not care enough to go after them and remind them of the glorious news of salvation in Christ, the need to be dedicated and devoted to Christ. But instead of letting them go, this provides us with the example and the evidence that we must go after them. We must pursue them with the news, which is life-changing, affecting not only our eternal destiny, but theirs. It is too easy to to say to ourselves, among ourselves, Oh, they aren't really interested. If they were, it wouldn't have stopped coming. They'd be here with us. It's too easy to make excuses for why we cannot go after them or why it would be embarrassing to do so. How often is it the case in the church when even in a small church like ours, it can happen readily. And people say, oh, yes, I haven't seen so-and-so for some time. As, as though in a church this size that you could really miss the fact that someone's missing. <laughs> you can't miss the fact. <clears throat> when people are no longer in our midst, we have not made efforts to find out why and to remind them that what we are doing is not insignificant, but has eternal value. Then we are doing various things. We are judging them. 
We are judging ourselves and we are downplaying the necessity of the purpose for which we are gathered when we gather together in church. For if the message is a message of glory concerning the person and the work of Christ, and shouldn't we be spreading that news? <clears throat> Reminding those who have shown an interest in him to keep on devoting themselves to worshiping him. Reminding those who have missed that they have missed the presence of the Lord. And instead of making assumptions about why our brothers and sisters have dropped out of worship, shouldn't we be urging upon them the glorious importance of what we are gathered together to do? Urging them to be once again among us so that the following week, even as Thomas was present when Christ returned and made his presence known among them, that they too will be present among us. We must do so, for to do any less is to show a callous disregard for their souls, to show a lack of understanding of the importance of this message concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, a price that Christ has paid to save us, and the glorious purpose we have in worshiping the risen Savior and our God together. Now, this is looking at the situation from the perspective of those who remain faithful and constant. Those who were there, those who were there that Sunday, even though they were behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jews. Consider for a moment with me Thomas' position in this. Perhaps to use the shorthand of past centuries, Thomas was providentially hindered. You hear that phrase from time to time in church circles. Perhaps Thomas was providentially hindered from being among the disciples who were gathered together that night when Christ appeared among them. Perhaps he had a very good reason for his absence. As I suggested earlier, we have no reason, no, 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 uh, no clear reason given for why he was not present among them. <clears throat> this is what people mean when they say providentially hindered. They mean perhaps he had a very good reason. <clears throat> But perhaps he did not have a good reason. Since we don't know why he wasn't among them, we cannot guess. This much, however, we do know. We know that Thomas was not among the disciples gathered together on the night the risen Savior appeared to them in a group for the first time. What did he miss by being absent? Whether for a good reason or poor one, whether he should have been among them or truly was unable to be there. He missed the most glorious moment of all time for those gathered together as a group. The moment of Christ's first revelation of victory to his followers. He also missed the glorious opportunity to worship the Lord gathered together with the believers. True, he was present among them and met with the Lord the following Sunday. But in the meantime, he responded to the news in a way which he truly regretted. He spent that week in doubt, stubborn refusal to believe the testimony of those who were telling the truth. Hence, he was prevented from beginning to live in the glory of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil by his absence. He knew that if it was true, he had missed that glorious event. He had missed the opportunity to worship Christ. He had missed the opportunity to become a witness to others. So while the others were living in the reality of the victory of Christ, 
because they had witnessed this glorious news firsthand as Christ appeared among them. Rejoicing in the knowledge of Christ's continuing love for them, because you understand they came into this situation in which there was very real doubt in some of their minds whether Christ would ever have anything to do with them again if he, if they ever did see him again, which they were convinced they wouldn't. But Christ had been rejected by all of his <clears throat> followers. <clears throat> and so Thomas continued in that doubt because of his response in running away from Christ, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thomas was continuing to live in the aftermath of the crucifixion, with even worse added to that, the tension that existed between him and the other disciples who insisted that what he refused to believe was, as we might put it, gospel truth. In other words, he not only existed in a situation where the, the pall of the crucifixion hung over him and his desertion of Christ, but he was also in tension and strain with the fellow believers. As our consideration of the position of the other disciples provided us with an example, so Thomas' situation gives us very clear direction, personal direction. When we neglect the gathering of the believers, we are making several things clear. If our absence is not unavoidable, we are making our priorities known. If those who have gathered together need comfort and encouragement, for instance, those who are together as believers, we are making it clear that we either do not care to help them, we don't think we have anything to offer them, or we simply have things and people we value more than gathering together with them. When we miss the gathering of the disciples, we are also missing the presence of the Lord. Various stories, fictional stories, have carried the theme of an unexpected visit by Jesus among his followers. I think the What Would Jesus Do um, phase of today began with, I think, uh, a story in his steps. Is that, is that the book, Andy? I think that's... And, and, and what happens in that story is... I haven't read this one, so I'm just referring someone else's uh, paraphrase of it or description of it. Is that Christ appears among them in worship. And so all of a sudden they start thinking of what should they do in order to honor him. Or they consider, what if Jesus was present among us? So there are various fictional accounts which carry this thought <clears throat> to get the readers to think about how they would respond differently if they realized that Christ was truly among them in church. Now we have in this account, in John chapter 20, a situation when to their shock and surprise Christ did exactly that. He appeared among his disciples in a very physical way, a physical way, which is always true in a spiritual way when God's people gather together to honor Christ. That Christ is present among them. <clears throat> so that those who were present in this John chapter 20 passage received the joy of his physical presence while the one who was absent, Thomas, missed out on this glorious opportunity. Now, you've heard it said, you've read it in Scripture and heard prayers that reveal that as we are gathered together, Christ is in our midst. But we still have a difficult time recognizing the truth of this passage and thinking and acting as we should. In this biblical account, the reality of this truth was brought home to the disciples in a stunning way. 
And this must be a reminder to us that even though we do not see Christ's presence in the flesh among us, that when we are together with God's people, worshiping Christ together, Christ is present among us in a special way. And when we are absent from that gathering, we have missed the appearance of the Lord. It's shown to us in the flesh in this passage, and Thomas is the one who misses out. But it's a very serious reminder to you and to me that in this physical situation, this physical account of John, there is spiritual truth that occurs every time the people of God get together to worship Christ. Now, it deserves noting for us to consider this fact. Uh, you know, we think of the situation if, if your favorite and most revered Christian leader were to be present here on a Sunday morning and you were to know that the week before, would you be here? Would I be here? And I think it does us good to consider these things because if we were to think Christ is going to be here this morning, would we be here? Well, there's not one of us who, whether from curiosity or devotion to him, would not say, absolutely, I'll be there. Who is going to miss Christ? And yet, what I'm alluding to is the reality when the people of the Lord gather together to worship. <clears throat> the final point to be made from this with regard to Thomas's experience is not only that we... When we are present with God's people, the Lord is in our midst. When we are absent, we are missing his presence. But also, when we neglect the gathering of the people of God, we are missing the opportunity to worship Christ in person. We are missing the opportunity to worship. Now, how many times in our day and age have you heard people, <clears throat> those who are addicted to spouting the message, the nonsense, I can worship God as well, out on the golf course, as I can in the church. I can worship him as well out in the forest as I can in the church. Just let me point you to this passage for a simple, it may seem simplistic, but I think it's an accurate answer to that. When Christ appeared to his followers to gain their adoration and worship, did he go out to the golf course? No. Did he go out in the forest? No, he appeared to the followers who were gathered together. Now, this is not to say that people do not experience the presence of God in these other situations. Because three Sundays ago, I preached about Mary the Magdalene, who did meet Christ in the garden. Yes, indeed. But the worship of God's people was when they were gathered together. Despite his previous unbelief, Upon seeing Christ, Thomas immediately believed, saying, My Lord and my God. Now, it's interesting to note in this, that there's no sense in which we should put Thomas down, I think. It's interesting to note that Thomas's statement of faith here is a profound statement, which is unparalleled to this point in the Gospel. He affirms Jesus as both Savior and God. 
My Lord and my God. And he goes beyond that. He doesn't say, oh, Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. Because Christ has said to him, stop doubting and believe. This is the essence of worship. Not only to declare Christ for who he is, in power and glory, but to submit to him. So that we not only say, he is Lord, he is God, but we go beyond that and we say, he is my Lord and my God. Because he does not show himself, he does not reveal himself to us. In whatever ways he does so, in the account and the testimony of Scripture, he does not do it so we can say, well, yes, it is true, this is a certain fact, we're sure of it, and that's good, good day, goodbye. Instead, he does it so that our lives would be profoundly touched and that we would be devoted to him and thereby find salvation. Now, in closing, I point you just to John's message here. What John says here is, he said, this is not the full account of the miracles that Christ performed. He did other things. He said other things. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's pointed out to us that if all that he did was written, it would fill much, much greater space than we could ever imagine. Why such a short account then? Why has he written these things? For one reason alone, so that by the witness of this testimony we might believe. What do we have before us here, then, in the Gospel of John? We have the record of the ages in which the apostles in John and the other Gospels are coming to us, saying to us, just as they said to Thomas, He is alive. He is risen. And He has appeared to us. Believe. That is a powerful message. And it comes to us in the words of Scripture, just as it came to Thomas, by the words of his friends. We must accept that message and embrace it as we embrace Christ. And we must be people who, having that earth-shattering message, declare it to the world so that they, too, might join us in worshiping Christ. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the truth of this message of the risen Savior. Cause us to trust and to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. To devote ourselves in humility to him. And cause us to declare this message to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.